For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a report on the debate about how money should be spent to secure the U.S.-Mexico border. A conversation with Douglas Biggers, most recently the editor and publisher of Edible Baja, Arizona. Meet Mona Palaka, a spiritual elder from Arizona who's one of the International Council of 13 Grandmothers. And Beth Surdit pays attention to the amazing biological adaptations of Gila woodpeckers. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. On Tuesday, two groups that are tasked with protecting U.S. ports of entry and the border clashed over how to use funding. It was during a hearing chaired by Arizona Republican Representative Martha McSally. Nancy Montoya has a report. The union that represents 16,000 U.S. Border Patrol agents endorsed Donald Trump for president and supported his plan to build a wall along the border. But now, facing unprecedented staffing shortages, many agents say money must go into hiring staff, not building new sections of a wall. Tucson Sector Border Patrol agent Rosemary Pepperdine represents a chapter of the agents' union. She testified that extra boots on the ground are needed more than funding for a wall. Illegal immigrants and drug traffickers routinely go over, under, and through existing fencing. Fencing without the manpower to arrest those who penetrate it is not a prudent investment. Agents dressed in green are the Border Patrol out in the field. Those dressed in blue are customs agents who work at the U.S. ports of entry. Anthony Reardon is the national president for customs workers. There is a vacancy rate of nearly 1,200 funded CBP officers at the ports. And according to CBP, an additional 2,500 CBP officers needed to be funded and hired. Now that adds up to a shortage of more than 3,500 agents across the country. Congresswoman Martha McSally. The manpower shortage is getting worse. We are losing ground every single month and there is no end in sight as we continue to lose experienced agents and officers through attrition without the ability to efficiently hire new ones. Other union representatives say the biggest reason for the staffing shortfall is that applicants are having difficulty passing the polygraph test. Two in three fail. Which is double the rate most law enforcement agencies see. That's John Affison, a Border Patrol agent and a union representative in Texas. He says candidates are failing the polygraph because it's not being administered correctly. But critics maintain the pool of candidates hoping to become agents is below traditional law enforcement standards. At this hiring rate, we're not able to keep up with attrition 
much less add manpower. Atheson adds it's not just a problem with hiring more agents, it's also a matter of retaining them. Agents leave CBP at twice the rate of other federal law enforcement agencies. Low pay, the working conditions, and low morale, he says, is costing taxpayers. It's our understanding that it costs approximately $180,000 to recruit, hire, and train one new agent. So, which that means with every agent that we lose, taxpayers are losing $180,000. CBP says while illegal border crossings are down to levels not seen since the 1970s, assaults on Border Patrol agents are up. Again, Agent Alpheson from Texas. Assaults on federal agents with a border security mission increased by 76 percent in 2017 compared to the previous year. Agents say drug violence at the border worries them more than immigrants seeking economic improvement or to reunite with family. The cartels are extremely violent and have killed an estimated 150,000 people, including law enforcement in Mexico. Finally, Tucson Sector's Rosemary Pepperdine told lawmakers that CBP is top-heavy with supervisors. To put this in perspective, the average large-sized police department has one supervisor for every 10 officers. The Border Patrol has one supervisor for every four agents. Why do we have twice as many supervisors as other law, large law enforcement agencies? Your guess is as good as mine. What isn't a question is that without more officers in the field and at the ports of entry, CBP will be forced to cut back services and leave remote areas of the border with fewer agents. And those lines at the ports of entry will keep getting longer. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Nancy Montoya. Next, Steve Jess talks with Douglas Biggers, who has been active in Tucson media since the late 1970s, about recent developments concerning the publication Edible Baja, Arizona. Edible Baja, Arizona published its last issue at the end of 2017. What happened after that? Well, Edible Baja, Arizona published its most recent issue, which was the November-December issue at the beginning of November. And what happened after that is we were caught unawares when some financing that we thought was in the pipeline, quite uh, confident about it, failed to materialize. And we were a couple days from going to press, and over the Christmas holiday, my wife and I uh, had some very serious discussions about whether or not we could go forward without that capital. And we decided that we needed to take a break and reassess uh, the business. You sent out an email to contributors that said that uh, your operating losses have been substantial and ultimately fatal and that you'd made the heartbreaking decision to stop, but you later wrote the magazine is very much alive. What, what happened there? I think for people who know me, uh, I've been operating uh, different businesses and projects in Tucson since 1984 when I graduated from the U of A and co-founded the Tucson Weekly. And as small business owners might be able to empathize, sometimes uh, circumstances change quickly and your perspective on those circumstances also changes as you continue to evaluate the facts. In this case, unfortunately, I think in retrospect, in an attempt to be uh, communicative and transparent with freelance writers and photographers and illustrators, to whom we owe money for uh, 
both the November issue and the issue that was getting ready to go to press. This is a project that I've pretty much devoted 24-7 to for the last five years and a good chunk of our personal finances and uh, resources from others. And the prospect of it not going forward was uh, exceedingly uh, devastating. I think a couple days later, I would probably have sent a different email, having had a little more time to evaluate our prospects. You had planned on issuing the magazine under a new name, Baja Arizona Magazine. Is that going to happen, and when? At this time, we have permanently abandoned that notion. I think it required a level of capitalization uh, that is probably just not realistic, uh, or certainly not realistic in the time frame in which we were trying to accomplish that. The edible concept is currently operating in about 90 markets in North America, uh, U.S. and Canada, and in Hawaii. And the Tucson version, or the Baja Arizona version, as we prefer to call it, was the flagship of the brand, in essence. And what I mean by that is, in terms of the number of advertisers, and the community support we clearly had been receiving, uh, the quality of the content, and just the impact in the community. The, For example, the UNESCO designation uh, is something I'm very proud of because it was a delegation from Edible Baja, Arizona, that went to meet with Mayor Rothschild initially to propose the idea that Tucson uh, seek that designation. Is a print magazine still the way to go forward, or do you want to change it into something more digital? I love print. When we started the magazine in the summer of 2013, uh, people really value the tangible, tactile, uh, experiential aspect of something that is beautiful and is an aesthetic experience that is quite different than just scrolling on your smartphone, which we all do endlessly. But I think print is still a very viable medium, and especially uh, when it comes to the commitment we had to storytelling, using really great graphics and photography and the uh, attention to detail that we had for our, our stories was such that we created this rich environment for advertisers uh, that really isn't available anywhere else. And you just can't replicate that online. You can have the uh, best website in the world and all the bells and whistles that you want, but uh, there's something about opening up uh, a book and turning the pages and feeling the paper and having that experience that's just not replicable in any other way. There is much more to Steve Jess's interview with Douglas Biggers online. Biggers answers some hard questions about Edible Baja Arizona's business model and the impact on staff and freelancers who were taken by surprise at the magazine's cancellation, plus possible futures for the brand. You can find the complete conversation on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org.
Indigenous Voices, Reflections of Native America is a new series on Arizona Spotlight, produced in conjunction with University of Arizona professor Patricia Gonzalez. In this debut feature, we'll hear from Mona Palaka, a spiritual elder of the Havasupai, Hopi, and Tewa tribes, known for her commitment to social justice and work on behalf of water and health rights for indigenous people. Polaka is a member of the World Council of Religious and Spiritual Leaders. In 2004, she also became part of a unique and very select group of women from around the world. It's called the International Council of 13 Indigenous Grandmothers, and we came together in October 2004 at a um, place in Phoenicia, New York, uh, the Menla Buddhist Retreat Center. It was a conference that was to create an opportunity for indigenous women to have dialogue with Western thinking women. And it was for us to talk about what were our concerns about the world today. And for the indigenous women, it was for us to have dialogue about what were the indigenous uh, teachings about life and what life would eventually become going by possibly um, prophecy. And invitations were sent out to over 20 indigenous women around the world, inviting them to participate. And of the invitations that were sent back, 13 of us from the indigenous group accepted the invitation and came. And we had grandmothers that came from uh, Tibet, but is now in exile and is in uh, living in Canada. And then a grandmother from Gabon, West Africa, is also a member. She came, and um, a grandmother from Kathmandu, Nepal, a grandmother from Oaxaca, Mexico. We had representation from Brazil, Japan, Alaska, Arizona, two from South Dakota, one from Montana, and one from Oregon. And people ask, why did we have more women from the states participate? And it's because there's such a diversity of the different tribes. You couldn't have someone from the Southwest being representative of the other tribes in the country. That was how we ended up with more American grandmothers as part of the council. We came together and this was a historical gathering. We found that when we spoke with one another as indigenous women, we found that we had so many common concerns, uh, our indigenous practices and instructions, original instructions were so similar. And that we were all involved in some way within our own communities, in making efforts towards preserving the culture, preserving earth-based medicine, as well as um, sharing the knowledge and the, the teachings as grandmothers and recognizing that as grandmothers, we have a sacred responsibility to share and to teach, continue the teachings with the young and um, as well as the importance of 
promoting spiritual practices that we we all have ways of prayer and how our spiritual practices are part of our sacred connection to all of the elements of life as well as including mother earth the water the air the fire the earth all these sacred elements how important it is to call for awareness and what we say it's it's a call of action for people to uh, recognize you know that concept of we are all related not only as human beings but all of what we call the divine creations all of life not only on mother earth but all the we we include the universe And for us to bring it forward and bring it out so that all people will become conscious. And they may be conscious already, but still to strengthen the consciousness as well as to strengthen the concept of being in balance, being in harmony with all of the creations that as human beings were such a tiny part of. That was part of the um, awareness that the grandmothers came to by coming together and speaking and sharing time with one another. And we did ceremonies together. We each did a ceremony, you know, shared a ceremony, a prayer. And we see our council as being grounded in prayer. And as one of our grandmothers always said, our late Untri Beatrice Long Visitor Holy Dance, she would say, prayer is the first thing. We have to have a prayer in front of us before we can do anything in the world. We have to have that prayer. Then we decided that what we would need to do is we needed to travel to each grandmother's home place and to make prayers there as the council and to offer um, guidance or to allow members of the grandmother's community, her people, to share with us their teachings or their, their concerns so that it, we created this support system. I think of it as being what I call the spirit net. We could say like the dream catcher all the interconnections, you know, to make one. That was Mona Palaka, a spiritual elder of the Havasupai, Hopi, and Tewa, and one of the International Council of 13 Grandmothers. You can hear the complete conversation between Mona and University of Arizona professor Patricia Gonzalez on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The music was from Earth Cycles by Gary Strautsos and David Ravelli. Listen for more Indigenous voices in the coming year. Author and wildlife illustrator Beth Serdet listens to ravens and is paddled with alligators in wild and scenic places. She also volunteers part-time as a barista in her own backyard, where she serves some pretty interesting characters. Welcome to my 24-hour, all-you-can-drink, outdoor bar. 
In other parts of the country, I served hummingbirds a combination of boiled water and sugar from these red feeders, but when I moved to Tucson, I had some surprise patrons belly up to the bar. Gila woodpeckers. Latin name Melanerpes europigialis are quite dapper, with black and white checkered and barred wings and tail, creamy cafe au lait head and body, with a golden tinge on the belly, and distinctive white wing patches that show when they fly. The males sport what look like a red lipstick streak on their heads. Their voices, clearly heard, even when competing with traffic noise, sound like squeak toys having a party. Giddy talkers, they announce their arrival at my hummingbird feeders, which they drain almost daily, even after visiting the agave flowers. The woodpeckers show up multiple times a day, yakking as they jump down the bark to the feeder, still vocalizing when they land, and in between drinks, calling back and forth from neighboring utility poles. You should hear them amp up the sound when the feeder is empty. In summer and early fall, when the lesser long-nosed bats drink from those same feeders every night until there is not a drop, the woodpeckers serve as my morning wake-up call. Yet, unlike the resident Anna's hummingbirds that share the feeder, hover around me, poke me, sometimes even follow me into the house when I carry the feeder in for a refill, the Gila's are always wary. Seeing me through the window as I rise to attend to them sends them fleeing, but they quickly return. To me, woodpeckers are marvels of anatomical engineering. Gila woodpeckers weigh about three and a half ounces, the same as a deck of cards, and are eight to ten inches long. They have two toes pointing forward and two pointing backward that help them move on vertical surfaces, and very stiff tail feathers that they can press into even prickly cactus spines to help stabilize while whacking away. Their sturdy beaks come to a gradual point and are self-sharpening. They have as much chance of fitting into those hummingbird feeder holes as a camel does through the eye of a needle. When I first watch the woodpeckers stand on the feeder, tipping it with their weight as they press the end of the beak to the hole, I thought they were sloshing the liquid so they could get a taste. I was wrong. What they do have in common with hummingbirds are tongues so long that they wrap around their skulls. A woodpecker's tongue is sticky and barbed at the end. It is guided by the flexible, muscle-covered hyoid bone that is attached at the right nostril, dividing into two parts between the eyes, wrapping all the way up and around the back of the skull. There, the separate pieces rejoin and attach to the muscle of the tongue. When the muscles surrounding the relaxed hyoid bone contract, they propel the tongue forward and out of the beak. These birds bang on surfaces at an average of 12,000 times a day, 15 miles per hour. The hyoid bone acts as a seat belt for the bird's brain, stabilizing the head and spine, protecting it from neurological trauma. 
Woodpeckers' brains are also tightly seated in their skulls, much more so than human brains, which can slosh on impact. The upper beak is longer, so it absorbs more of the shock than the lower beak. The force travels up the beak, meeting the hyoid bone in the nostril, before hitting spongy bone in the skull. The stress then travels along the path of the hyoid bone, diffusing into the muscles that cover it. Woodpeckers, who are omnivorous, glean insects from the surface of the bark. Their hearing is so astute, they can detect insect activity well below that, which may explain the added popularity of the rotting mesquite tree where a feeder hangs. The tap-tap-tapping isn't all about food. On noisily resonant surfaces, such as metal screens and antennas, the birds are announcing their presence and territory. Gila woodpeckers mate for life, unlike polygamous acorn woodpeckers. During spring and summer, they are capable of producing two clutches of eggs, three to five each time, and gestation period is only two weeks. Both parents take part in nest building and feeding, usually in a mesquite tree or a saguaro cactus, which comes with the bonus of sweet fruit in summer. The birds perform a kind of surgery when they drill into a cactus to create a nesting site. The plant heals by covering the wound with sap that slowly hardens, forming a solid casing called a boot. Drying time can take a few months, so holes are excavated but not used until the next brood. And other birds, lizards, snakes, or rodents may move into these timeshare condos. Gila woodpecker families are around my house daily. So when I saw a fledgling, with its head turned and tucked under fluffed-up feathers, unmoving on the ground under the mesquite tree, I wondered if there was a behavioral pattern I'd missed. The youngster didn't move when I walked out and sat on a nearby bench, but eventually it woke up and flew up to a neighbor's roof. I went back to my drawing table, but an hour later I saw a few people standing around the bird as it sat on a cement entryway. Something wasn't right. I put the bird in a carrier and rode with my neighbor to the Tucson Wildlife Center. As the engine of her vintage sports car loudly rumbled on what seemed like an endlessly long trip, I thought about the acuity of the bird's hearing and wondered if the reverberations, along with the trauma, would be too much for this little creature to bear. Despite its built-in protection, the woodpecker died 15 minutes after we arrived, probably due to internal injuries from a window strike. I returned home to find another fledgling and its parent inspecting my newly planted barrel cactus. While I don't put out bird seed, when it comes to the critters, I live to serve. For the almost three years I've been in Tucson, I've been filling the watering holes and keeping the sugar bar open, happily accepting my role as barista to the local wildlife. One of my rewards is being able to listen to the Gila woodpeckers talk as they tip the feeders and drink in the sweetness of life. You can find Beth Sertit's illustration of a Gila woodpecker and photos by Doris Evans and Peggy Coleman on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. 
Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.